There is a song by Bono and U2. It's called I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. The opening lyrics are I have climbed highest mountains. I have run through the fields only to be with you, only to be with you. I have run, I have crawled, I have scaled these city walls, these city walls, only to be with you. But I still haven't found what I'm looking for, but I still haven't found what I'm looking for. How do we know when we have found what we are looking for? And do we even know what we're looking for? This is Between Us, Stories of Unconscious Bias. I am Smitha Tharoor. Christos Dimitriou is an entrepreneur, music producer, songwriter and pastor. Chris's commercial history embraces multiple areas of business activity. Sports promotion, public relations, a TV broadcast network and a brokerage business. If that's not enough, Chris is also the author of four books and has hosted a program which is aired in 36 countries and it's called It's All Greek to Me. Chris is responsible for three top five chart hits and two number one songs. One of Chris's compositions featured in the opening ceremony of the 2012 Olympic Games and appears in Q Magazine's top 100 singles of all time. The Guinness Book of Records cited the original version as being the first sample ever used in a music production. Having worked in different capacities with very many well-known celebrities, Chris is professionally linked to world-renowned music artists. For example, Cat Stevens, David Bowie, Mike Darbo, and John Congos. Yet, let's continue. There's still more to the story. In 1990, Chris and his wife, Lorraine, founded Cornerstone Ministries. It's a registered charity and an evangelical Christian church based in Surrey. Cornerstone Ministries started as a small Bible study group that grew rapidly to a congregation now exceeding 600 people. Cornerstone is a multicultural and multi-ethnic community made up of 41 nations. Welcome, Chris. With your hugely varied life experience, I'm sure you'll have some great stories to share today. Thank you so much for joining me. It's an absolute pleasure, and I've been looking forward to it. I love to talk and encourage people, and I trust that our discussions today will encourage the listeners that you have. Oh, I hope so too, because that's the beauty of these conversations we have, Chris, because the idea of a podcast and unconscious bias is that it's heard all over the world. And I'm sure your stories will resonate with people who may not have your experiences, but there's still something else that kind of links with them and resonates with them. But before we even go into stories, Chris, we're talking unconscious bias. What do you understand by that? Well, it's how you respond through everyday life to certain situations or certain people. And it's almost instinctive because it's unconscious. It's just the way you're wired. And of course, all of us on that conscious of our unconscious biases, because it's not something you think about. It's just something that happens. Exactly. And it's instinctive. Yes. So therefore, how can we be conscious of it? I wonder yeah. in that regard, Chris, if you could possibly share a story with me about what that looks like for you, your stories. Well, I think my stories, if I think about unconscious bias, I mean, there's two levels. There's the natural physical level, you know, where 
you know, you're consciously engaging, but then there's also a spiritual level. So I'd like to deal with the two separately. Sure. On, a, on a natural level, I tend to have subconscious bias towards people and situations that may be influential. I love to be in a position of to be part of something that influences in a positive way, not a negative way, those around me. So what I tend to do is when certain people or certain situations arise in my life that I know can impact, I just get drawn to it and I get drawn into it and I love doing it. And I think all the key people in my life that have influenced me is because I was drawn to them. Now, and this is the beauty of subconscious matters is that they happen not because you've deliberately and willfully done it, but you can't help yourself being drawn to that. And if you are drawn to positive things, then of course, positive things will arise in your life. I was drawn to a person called Tony DeFries, who was at the time David Bowie's manager. And that one experience, that one encounter really changed the course of my life. And there are other milestones in my life, and I can always put it down to being drawn to a person. So can we go back yet again? I mean, because I love the idea, because we all have what we call instincts, don't we? And let's create a scenario. I'm in a social occasion, and most of the people there, I don't know, you know, pre-COVID days, when you could actually be at somebody's home, and there are 15 or 20 people, and we're mingling and standing around having glasses of wine. But I don't know most of them other than my host. And I have an instinctive affinity with one person more than another. But then I'm just curious about why is it that you're drawn to people in this instinctive, unusual way, like David Bowie's manager, for example? I think it started off with a sincere desire to be successful. And then, you know, that's very sort of animalistic, if you like. You just want to be successful, so you want to hang around with successful people. But I think as I've matured in life, I've realized that there's something deeper than that. It's wanting to be like them, not just wanting to be successful. You see something in someone that because it has influence and it's not just about success, it's about that influence. And you would love to have that. You would love to learn by it and use it correctly. So I've, over the years, obviously instinctively done those things, but I've realized that now I'm in a position where I can be influential and people are drawn to me. And when we get to the spiritual side, it's quite interesting because it's both spiritual and natural, this law that we're talking about, this law <laughs> of affinity. <laughs> the law of affinity. Okay, so to come back, because I rudely interrupted you earlier, just to ask yeah. about you know what was taking you there, but to come back to your story, please continue about, I think you were saying you had met David Bowie's manager and then... Yes, I mean, the, the story is I was playing in a band and there were five of us and we were driving up and down the motorway and everyone thought we'd be very successful. We were even the support act for Led Zeppelin's first gig at Leeds University. And I think we were okay. We could have made it. 
But I was getting more and more frustrated. So I answered an ad in the trade magazine, which was called The Melody Maker. And there was an ad for a production assistant from someone called Lawrence Myers, who was the accountant to all the stars. Anyway, I answered the ad, met Lawrence, and then he introduced me to David Bowie's manager, to Tony DeFries. And I didn't know Tony, but there was an immediate connection and I was drawn to him. And I think that opened up something for him because he didn't know much about me and he wasn't looking for a production assistant. He was just looking for someone that he could mentor that would help him going forward. So it just started to unravel from there. That changed the course of my life because I started to work you know, in the studio, I always wanted to be a record producer. I was learning how to do business. In fact, I instigated the publishing contract that we eventually negotiated and sealed between David Bowie and Chrysalis Music. And I got very friendly with Bob Grace, who at the time was the publishing head. And uh, that changed the course of my life. So. I wasn't then playing in a band. Suddenly I was in the music industry as a negotiator, as an executive, learning all the time from Tony. And then again, I met someone else who as well was very influential, but in a different area. And that directed me to being sort of full time as a record producer. So I put these sort of instinctive relationships, if you like, down to how I was wired up, what was in me, the sincere desire to connect with people and become influential with them, through them, and then eventually on my own. And there's nothing better than influencing people in a positive way. And I think that's really the message that I would like if someone said, you know, what's your life story? I would say, well, I wouldn't have one unless I could influence people in a positive way and help them. And that's my heart, especially for younger people, you know, because I think they've been given a raw deal at the moment. At the moment, yes, they have. But I'm just uh, thinking about you as a young person, Chris. Let's go back a few years. Certainly by your name, we know that you're Greek and the fact that you hosted a television program called It's All Greek to Me. I must ask you about that in a minute. But let's just go back to your earlier years as a child, because I'm just trying to explore this idea of unconscious bias with you and the idea that, you know, who you are, your number one life story is about influencing other people in a positive way. That's for you. That is what drives you on a day to day basis. But then let's go back to the beginning, you know, at whatever early age you can think of, it's up to you, five, eight, ten. What were your stories then that may have, and I could be wrong, already started embedding within you that this is a good thing to do? Okay, it's interesting that you mentioned it's all Greek to me. And I was born in a little village in Cyprus, and my parents immigrated to South Africa because, you know, it was the time you know, the village empty because one person went over and the word got back that it's the land of milk and honey and everything's great over here. So of the five or 600 people in the village, and the majority of them ended up in South Africa. I was very young, only two years old, 
in South Africa. And that started me off you know, learning English and Afrikaans, but I spoke Greek at home. And uh, what happened was my mother wanted me to read and write Greek, so she brought a woman around every Friday afternoon to teach my sister and myself Greek. I hated it. I mean, what all my friends were playing, and here I was having to learn Greek. And so it's something that I didn't want to do. But yet, if we fast forward to when I you know, became a pastor and I started to do sermons and speak before people, and you know, I've done over 6,000 sermons in my life, the key ingredient to how I deliver the message is my understanding <laughs> of the original Greek. So if I wasn't taught to read Greek by this woman, Zaka, I would never have fulfilled my call. And I mean, I kicked out of it and it lay dormant for 30 years. But now it's the essence, the key to how I teach and deliver and give people insight into the Word of God. Hence, it's all Greek to me. <laughs> I love uh, that story. It's a great story. I mean, because I can tell you, I'm nodding too. I remember having every Saturday being forced to learn my mother tongue, which is very different to the language. You know, I grew up in India, as you know, and oh, I don't want to do it. But the sense of identity and acknowledgement and so on is huge with the benefit of hindsight. So I am laughing because I'm there are many like you who've been in that same experience. But in addition to that, though, Chris, so you are in South Africa. Perhaps you wouldn't have been aware of this because you were very little when you moved from Cyprus to South Africa, but you were already emigrated from one country to another. So the reason why I'm continuing that story of your early years is this idea of unconscious bias. And going back to your original point about wanting to help out and connect with other people. So growing up in South Africa, what was that about? I mean, what kind of lessons do you think with the benefit of hindsight you took away? Look, I was very sensitive to my environment, you know, unlike a lot of people. And because I was musical, for me, there was no apartheid. There was no division. You know, for me, everyone was the same. And that didn't help me in that, you know, I got quite frustrated. And also, alongside that was that, and you will identify with this, in your community and my Greek Cypriot community, there was a strong bond with everyone and everyone's life was laid out before them. You know, like my father wanted me to be an accountant, a lawyer or a doctor. And here I am, I'm a musician, <laughs> which he was not pleased with because they were the lowest of the low in the villages, the musos. And here is his son. He's worked all his life to give to his son what he didn't have. And I didn't want it. So I became almost a model rebel in the Greek Cypriot community. And I was respected and revered by all the young people that wanted to do what I was doing, but just didn't have the strength to. So I instinctively removed myself so that I could freely move away to the things that I loved doing but also to the environment that I wanted to work in. 
and that wasn't apartheid. So the song that is still very active today, it's called Step On, was originally He's Gonna Step On You Again. I wrote the lyrics while I was in South Africa, and it's an anti-apartheid song. The opening lyrics are, Hey, Rainmaker, come away from that man. You know he's going to take away your promised land. And you know, what I was doing is r relating what happened in North America with the Red Indians, what was happening in South Africa, that you know there was this dominating force that would steal everything. And that's just captured the imagination of I don't know how many generations, but it's been going for over 50 years. And it's still a very active song. So South Africa was difficult for me. I then just got on a ship at the age of 17. And, you know, to the horror and distraught of my mother <laughs> and family. And I came to London. And that was it. I was drawn instinctively to the environment that I felt I could live in and be creative in without the barriers that were in place between white and black and colored and Asian. And it's strange because South Africa used to pigeonhole everyone. You know, I was the Greek, you know, my friend was the Portuguese. So it wasn't just white and black. It was almost your heritage, who you really are, that they pigeonhole. And that teaches you a lot. Yeah, um, there's a couple of things here that I want to just kind of flag up again for the sake of the listeners and myself. Certainly two things that come to mind. One is how much your values and your identity and who you are was embedded in those early years in South Africa. One, because of this apartheid and the fact that, you know, you are white skin and therefore you supposedly should not mix with other people who are black and so on. And alongside that, this idea of identity that you are Greek and being forced to learn Greek on a Friday or a Saturday or whatever it was. So that's there, that's being embedded. And you don't know it, but you know it in your heart and your head that this business of showing discrimination is not right. And so you come away to England, to London. But then alongside that, and this is what I'm finding interesting, is that despite the fact that your parents were clearly unhappy and did not want you to go to London, they were not controlling parents. And I'm deliberately saying that because there would be people around the world hearing your story and saying, ah, Chris, you were lucky. You managed to do what you wanted to do. You got to London. You know, you had the confidence to go and speak to David Bowie's manager and X, Y, Z. So there was also some level of genuine support from the parents, despite the fact that your father must have said, oh, my God, my son's let me down. He's not going to be an accountant. Or am I going around the wrong path on that one? No, well, I, you know, my mother was always supportive. I mean, she was an incredible support for me. And But my dad, I had to fight him every step of the way. So if you really want it, you know, the first obstacle you may have to overcome is resistance from your parents. And, of course, then your immediate community. If, exactly. If and that's why... You know, my dad was okay with me playing an instrument when I was nine. But then when I joined the band at the age of 12, he objected because he knew that that would take me somewhere else. And 
I fought him. He used to hide my guitar, and then he found out I was still playing in the band, and then he broke the guitar, and that's how I learned to play the piano, because there was a piano in the house, and my sister was having lessons on it. Well, now I couldn't play guitar, so I just learned to play the piano. I taught myself, but I fought him right up until I had my first hit in South Africa, and I was 16. So for about four years, there was all-out war. Then I took the record, and I showed his name, me and Demetrius, on the, the sleeve. And I said, look, Dad, this is what my music has achieved. And then he just turned around, and then he started to support me. That's um, wonderful. I mean, because it says so much about you, Chris, and your genuine passion and self-belief, because that's what I want the listeners to take away. That, you know, we really, really, really want to do something. You've got to keep at it. You've got to keep at it. Don't give up. Absolutely. Absolutely. And the thing is, I got that from him. <laughs> <laughs> oh, there you go. <laughs> That's brilliant. I love yeah. it. I love it. But yes, do share another story, Chris. Yeah. So, you know, I'd like to sort of move to the spiritual Please, side. Please. I'd love that. Yeah. So, here I am, I've done all the things I wanted to do, achieved almost all my goals. I had the success, and but I was still empty inside. And I remember- well, Pause a minute, what does empty inside mean? I want I, us to understand that. Yes, it's being frustrated because you know there's more, there's something else. And I remember when I was working with Cat Stevens and he found Islam, and he tried to convert me to Islam. And he said, Chris, you're still searching. And until you find it, you're not going to be settled. And I agreed with him. But he couldn't persuade me to leave my old life and take on this new life. So I had to have an encounter with God that was personal and real, which I did have. And that's what turned me around. And then because I was drawn to those things. I'm a 1,000% kind of person. I can't just dip my toe in it. I dive in. So when I found God and, you know, I pursued, you know, the Christian faith, I just dived in. I shut down everything, went back to South Africa because that's where I was visiting my parents and that's where I had this God encounter. And I just stayed there and I met my wife and worked in the church and just things totally change. Can I but, ask the encounter? Is that too much to ask? Would you share? Yes. My sister used to pray for me a lot. And then, you know, she'd call me and I would sort of giggle, you know, over the phone because I thought, what are they doing? These are really strange, weird people saying that, oh, God told me to this and we're praying for you. You know, that was just not in my vocabulary. Anyway, I hadn't seen my parents for a long time, so I went to South Africa. And then my sister said, well, will you come to church with us? And I thought, oh, no. You know, How old were you, Chris, at this point? In my 30s. Okay, yeah. So, you know, this is having done all those things. And, you know, when I worked with people like Cat Stevens, I mean, we used to write and produce songs for everyone. We had Buddha in the chocolate box. We had Buddha. We had Islam, we had Jesus, we had everyone. So, you know, we were open to everything, but it wasn't real. And this is the thing. So anyway, I, out of embarrassment, I went to church and I'm sitting there 
And because the minister is saying the things he's saying, I'm convinced that I've been set up. Because how would he know? You know, it's like he's reading my mail. And I thought, well, my sister's told him about me. And at the time, I was a compulsive gambler, so I could work What was off. he saying? We have to ask. The listeners will say, Chris, tell us more. What was the minister saying? Well, I don't really remember the detail of it, but it was something, yeah. speaking to my heart about things, you know, about forgiveness and fear and all those things that, mm. that, you know, I was riddled with. And at the end of his message, he just said, well, you know, if God's spoken to you today, God's touched you, then I'd like you to come forward so I can pray with you. Well, of course, I'd worked out the odds of this happening being my sister briefing him and setting me up. But when he said that, something happened, something touched me, and I started to weep like a baby, and I found myself going forward. And I thought, wow, Chris, you've been living on the edge for so long, and maybe you just flipped. <laughs> so I'd worked it all out in my mind that this wasn't real. but. The moment he prayed for me, a peace that surpasses understanding came into my mind and into my heart. And it's a peace that I've been seeking all my life, you know, because you're afraid of winning, you're afraid of losing, you're afraid of all this fear and anxiety that was inside me, you know, just swirling around for years. It just left in this peace. And then I said to myself, well, if this is insanity, hey, this is quite cool. This is cool. <laughs> I love it. That's so yeah. moving, though, Chris. I mean, I'm laughing, but it's not a laugh. That is very, very moving because it's about some of it is about being in the right place at the right time. There you were in South Africa. You did not want to be in the church, but you went just to please your sister. Yeah. But and clearly, prior to that, you had already been questioning. You're in your 30s, you're an adult, you know, it's you're not like 12 or 15. And you've been questioning and you've already, because you have the privilege of being close to Cat Stevens, you've already had this conversation about spirituality, about what this means to us. Cat Stevens has tried to communicate with you and suggest maybe the path of Islam would be the right thing for you. So there have been these questions going on in your head for a few years prior to being where you are. Oh, definitely. I mean, I was seeking. But I believe all of us take a different journey to find God. You know, the journey that you would take or Yusuf had taken is different to my journey. But the person leading us to that place is God himself by his spirit. So, you know, although I was resistant, I didn't understand it. I know that that was a God encounter because he had orchestrated it. He knew that. I was an odd person and that if I was going to encounter him, he'd have to give me odds that I could not fathom because otherwise I would always question it. I know without shadow of doubt that what happened to me that day could never have been orchestrated by anyone other than my creator. And that changed my life. That turned me around. And even the way I met my wife, because she traveled from Scotland and I traveled from London and I went to this little 
swimming baths in a pool up the road from where I was raised. And there was only a you know, small patch of green grass there, but it was full of people. I happened to sit next to my wife and her empty cup blew over and I gave it to her and she was with her mother. And I picked up the Scottish accent. I said, oh, you're from the UK, so am I. That is how I met my wife. What are the odds <laughs> of people traveling that and meeting in a public place? And not only that, I was reading a book that she'd read. Yeah, it's just unbelievable. So I love that's, it. It's that's just how, planned. It was ordained. Yes, it was ordained. You, you go back there, you go to that church, you sit in that tiny little grass patch. Yes. I love it. I love it. And because, so, you know, we often, it's serendipity, but it's also not serendipity. That's what you're saying. And this is why those listening to us today need to be encouraged because, you know, we can't do all the seeking, all the sweat and toil trying to find things. In fact, on Sunday, my message was, I can't find what I'm looking for. Remember, there was a song by YouTube that has that lyric. And I taught about how do you find what you're looking for? You realize that God has to take you to a place and he has to do certain things for you to really find them. And that's what happened to me. He orchestrated it in such a way that I couldn't help but end up where I am today. So if you were looking and you haven't found it, don't worry it will come to be. So where are you today, Chris? You've got a congregation of 600 people. Tell us a little bit about that. I mean, you're supporting, mentoring young people, and you continue with the music. And yes. even your sermons are musically connected, which is lovely. Yes. Well, the desire to influence people in a positive way and help them, the tools that God gave me was a my understanding of the Greeks, I can read the original Greek, not the translation, because you can't translate Greek to English directly. I mean, one word can take a whole paragraph to explain. You know, that's why the term, it's all Greek to me, comes from. It's because Greek is so descriptive and so accurate that you can take one word and elaborate on it I and mean, you drop it in its setting and it comes alive so i use that to show people to take people to a place where once you unravel this and put it back together again they say i can see it so i love people to see the truths that will help them in their lives and what i call universal truth it's like the law of you know, sowing and reaping, the law of gravity. If you jump off a building, it's going to work, whether you believe it or not. The law of sowing and reaping, you know, if you sow bad seed, you're going to get bad crop. Whether you believe it or not, you can't deny that. But if you sow good, that's what you will get. You will get good. And explaining these universal principles and truths to people and unraveling them, the Bible is full of them. So it's a manual for life and young people need help. They need to see things. They need to have good self-esteem and self-worth and build themselves up. And God's word does that. But I'm fully focused on delivering a word that encourages and builds up 
and influences in a possible way. So that's what I do every Sunday. I love it. I can't wait for the next Sunday. And the way I do my sermons is the same way I used to write songs. Writing songs, I would always be the instigator of whatever my songwriting partner and I wrote because I would have that initial lyric. And how I would have that is my antenna would be up all the time. If someone said something or if I saw something, I would just write it down. Well, but that's, that's about giving, supporting others, though. How about you yourself? How do you manage your own demons and unconscious biases? We all have those. That's life, right? So do you okay. do you do something for yourself, or is it you're supporting oh, yeah. others that helps you? Oh, that's where you get your energy, but you've got to get inspiration, and inspiration is always supernatural. It kind of doesn't come from just looking at a sunset going down, although that's beautiful. Real inspiration comes from the Holy Spirit. And I spend time in God's Word and in meditation. But I'm also very, very disciplined in my thought life. So how I operate is I only have one compartment open at any one time. That's so hard. Yes, but you've got to discipline yourself because you can't be talking to you and having your mind somewhere else or that's fair yeah so when i'm you know at church like today i'm off to the church office my mind isn't on my work it's not on you know the football game that i'm going to watch or it's purely disciplined and focused on that one thing now life isn't an exact science so there are times where suddenly the five doors are and, you know, then you have to rapidly shut the ones that aren't priority so that you can focus and put your energy into that one. If I couldn't do that, I would burn out. So one thing at a time. When I One thing at a time. We would always have five doors, 10 doors, 20 doors open. Yeah. Focus you, on what we need to do now and just do that. Good advice. Yes, just learn to shut them. And if you're at home and you know you're with your family, it's family time. Don't have the phones on and don't you know, obviously if someone is hemorrhaging in the street and you've got to go and help them, that's different. But doing things that are not that important aren't going to benefit you. I have a, a sort of measure that I use. Is it important? Yes. Can I deal with it? Yes. Can I deal with it now? That's the big one. Because <laughs> mm. <laughs> sometimes your priorities, you're forced to deal with a priority that's maybe 10 or 12 in your list because of other people's needs. And you've got to resist the temptation and be able to say no for your own sake in a nice way. I mean, you know, you don't ever reject someone that's truly in need, but you can be drawn into stuff that and just waste your time and waste other people's time. But if you go through your checklist and you get to, well, can I do it now? You know, if it's yes, 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 and then it's like two in the morning, well, chances are you're going to say no. Well, then you just go to sleep. Yeah, good advice. I could keep talking, Chris, but I think this is a good time to stop. Dimitri, you, thank you so very much.
for your sharing your stories of unconscious bias with me today. I think the listeners will take a lot away from it. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure and I've really enjoyed it. And yeah, maybe we will do it again sometime. Exactly right. Thank you again. Okay, God bless. to announce that my podcast series is now heard in 104 countries, ranging from Guadalupe to Iceland, Argentina to Palestine, and even Morocco. It is ranked in the top 3% worldwide. This is clearly a series that connects with people all over the world, and you are one of them. I thank you for listening. I would also like to thank Jack Godfrey for his original music in the closing of each podcast interview. If you like this episode, Please do share, rate and review. I am Smitha Tharoor. Until next time.